Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 68 of the Burden of Command podcast. This episode, I have another great guest from our folks over at C.S. Lewis Publicists and Company, uh, Dr. Tara Peters. You're going to love this, uh, love this interview, especially if you are an entrepreneur or business owner and you are struggling with what every other entrepreneur and business owner struggles with, employee engagement. Dr. Peters and her co-author, Dr. Bush, uh, give you a lot of feedback, a lot of statistics, and a lot of valuable tools on how to turn those disengaged employees back into engaged employees and or find better engaged employees. But Dr. Peters says it best herself, so I'm not going to belabor the point right now, and I'm going to let you get right into this interview with Dr. Tara Peters. Well, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today's guest is one half of the authorship duo of the book, The Demotivated Employee, helping leaders solve the motivation crisis that is plaguing business. Dr. Tara Peters is a gifted educator, TED Talk speaker, best-selling author, and international consultant with a client list that includes Coca-Cola, Allstate, Walmart, and Aquin. A professional educator for more than 26 years, she currently serves as a professor at Northwood University's Richard Davos Graduate School of Management and is an academic dean for its Texas campus. As I mentioned before, she is the co-author of the new book with Dr. Kathy Bush titled The Demotivated Employee, Helping Leaders Solve the Motivation Crisis That is Plaguing Business. Dr. Peters, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Earl. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm excited to get into this discussion because uh, motivation and, and keeping employees going, especially in a, a kind of a virtual environment when right now in the midst of the COVID crisis is, is a huge topic. So this is a very timely, uh, very timely interview. I would agree with you as well. And so certainly we've been having conversations about this, both internally and externally. So I'm looking forward to you and I having a chance to chat about that as well. Well, absolutely. So before we get into that discussion, I want to start you off where I start everybody. When you hear the phrase, the burden of command, what does that mean to you? So when I think about that phrase, one of the things that that comes to mind is certainly there's a a military uh, connotation there. And while I didn't serve in the military, I certainly have great respect and admiration for those who have served and and sacrificed for this country so that uh, you and I enjoy the freedoms that we have. And I know that you've served um, in our armed forces as well. And so for me, what I really think about is just the responsibility that you have, um, because leadership really is about others and understanding that responsibility, understanding the accountability that comes with it, and then being conscious of that in the choices that you are making because the implications uh, of those decisions really could be quite profound in terms of the people who are ultimately either going to have to execute that decision or who are going to be affected by it. So that's what I think about when I consider the burden of command. Oh, no, I love that answer. I love that answer. And um, so kind of building on that, mentioning the military, you know, motivation was a big topic for us, but uh, it, it showed its head in kind of the stereotypical sometimes, if you will, screaming and yelling. Uh, I know in some organizations they use motivation through incentives and, you know, we've all heard about, you know, ping pong tables and all the, the fun stuff. And sometimes motivation is incentivized through through monetary packages and all that. But what really is motivation? So, of course, motivation has been, I mean, researched for for decades now, and there's different schools of thought on it. And kind of the two big buckets are intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So the extrinsic piece being the things you kind of talked about around monetary incentives, bonuses, payouts, the kinds of things that we tend to to reach for in terms of trying to cause people to be energized and to give effort towards the work that has to be done. And then the, the really the flip side of that is really say, okay, motivation is not a function of external factors, but it really 
starts from within. It comes from, it resides within the person. And it also has a premise that you and I actually own our motivation. And so you and I decide what are the levers, if you will, that will cause us to want to give the extra effort that will cause us to be committed uh, to the work and to engage in a way that allows the organization to get uh, to the you know, designated outcomes. And, and really, Kathy and I really, because we've been in higher education for uh, 20 plus years, and we've been in industry for even longer, we really have come to the place that we be- believe that intrinsic motivation is really where we need to focus our efforts. It doesn't mean that we ignore pay, <laughs> because you can certainly affect people's motivation <laughs> if you don't pay them fairly, uh, and if you don't pay them in a way that allows them to meet their personal and, and physical needs that they might have to create security, et cetera. So pay does have a place, but you can't expect that continuing to pay people and extending uh, monetary bonuses or other types of uh, incentives over time are really going to cause people to maintain their motivation. They can have a temporary benefit, but it's not longstanding. And so we have really focused our energy and really our, our writing and efforts around really focusing in on intrinsic motivation. Mm, okay. No, I, I that, that's a great way of, of putting it and a great way of looking at it. Um, so I guess the, the big place to start here, and this is where y'all start in, in the book, what happened to employee motivation? So it's it's a great question, right? Um, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it really is. And, and when we think about it, really what it really started from, so Kathy and I were teaching and we taught in the DeVos Graduate School and we were teaching in the MBA program. And so, of course, people come back to school to work on an MBA because they're professional, they're in industry, and and they want to climb the corporate ladder or they want to start their own business. So they're aspirational in terms of what they want to do. And so we were we were having conversations and we would, you know, hear these, you know, highly talented, uh, clearly uh, capable individuals talking about how they had lost their motivation. They would go on and, you know, talk about what had actually transpired that had resulted in them feeling that way. And so Kathy and I said, okay, we really need to drill down on this to try to better understand what is it that's happening? Because you and I can remember when we first started our job, right? We were excited. We were like, oh my God, I have this new job, this new opportunity. I'm super excited. I can't wait to join the organization. I'm going to be working with these amazing people. I'm going to, you know, really get to use my gifts and my strengths to the organ and bring those to the organization and really help to drive performance or whatever objectives the organization is trying to achieve. And so we were all gung ho. We were ready to go. And then we got in there. <laughs> and then something happened to us, right? And it might might have just been a little thing. It might have been that you were in a meeting and your idea was dismissed. Um, it might have been that maybe you got some some adverse feedback. And so, you know, that kind of punched a little hole in in your basket. Or maybe, you know, you had a lot going on at work, you were really stressed. And so, you know, that had an, an impact on you. But over time, you and I survive, we use this analogy in the book of a basket analogy, things happen at work. And and so we get holes punched in our basket and little holes you and I will recover from. So we have a disappointment. We have a setback. We're typically resilient. We'll come back from that. But over time, if we continue to be punched um, in terms of our motivational basket, if we have situations that, that, that persist over time, it can cause you and I to actually be deflated. And people who were once highly engaged, highly committed uh, to the work are suddenly dragging into work um, are suddenly no longer contributing uh, in meetings or, or, or suddenly missing work um, and not um, able to be fully present. And so really trying to understand that we think is important because there's a financial consequence when you think about that, going from that employee who was super excited about doing the work to someone who's now no longer excited, no longer engaged. What's that individual like when they're interacting with your customers? Mm-hmm. You want them talking to your new client? Um, what's that individual like uh, when they're in meetings and you're trying to work on a new product development? Are they fully present, engaged, giving their ideas? So when you and I think about that, just from a leadership perspective, we really want to try to get to the bottom of it and understand to the original question, what happened to their motivation? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, uh, and, and there's a lot. I mean, you know, like we touched on already, there's a lot of things that that could happen uh, to to demotivate an employee, and they're not always obvious. 
And, and what I liked about what you, your basket analogy there is there's a thing that, uh, you know, uh, my partner and I, uh, we, we kind of marry diversity, inclusion, and leadership together. And we talk about a very similar concept. Uh, in psychology, they call it moral injury, right? And, and, and it has the same mm-hmm. exact effect as what you're talking about. It's, it's these, when, when something that is, is valued by the employee and, and that an organization states, this is just one small example, states that it's valuable to them, and then they act counter to that, you've, you've violated like a deeply held belief for that individual, and you've created this moral injury. And like you said, one or two you can, you can, you can withstand, but you know, eventually they build up and, and you can create a, a complete moral break, uh, and, and sometimes that leads to quitting. But one of the ways that that manifests is through a demotivated employee. They're checked out of work. Uh, they're, they're not as gung-ho like you said. And, and I like the way that you tie that in there with, with that kind of bottom line because, uh, you know, it, it does. It, it has a huge impact. Uh, are, are you familiar with Zappos? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Yes, we we love we love Zappos. We talk about their culture because we think it's it's really it's really they kind of become really a a model for what you would actually want. So yeah, so talk some more about Zappos. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean and and, and go, tying into the bottom line piece there. Um you know, it it's so important to them and I think they still do this. They actually pay an employee to leave at the end of the training cycle because it costs them less money to pay somebody to leave than to keep somebody on board that doesn't want to be there. So uh, I don't know what your experiences are with that. Is that a tactic that, that you all think is is worthy of, of looking at for other organizations? Or what are your thoughts on that? So here's, here's what I would say. I think the idea that you want people who are going to fit – not just with the role, but also with the culture, I think is important. And so whether that is the way that Zappos does this, which is where the training happens and then the, the employee has a, has a decision to make whether or not this is a good fit or not, I think hiring for fit and bringing people on board that will match uh, not only just in terms of the skills, but also the culture of the organization. So whether it's a clan culture or market culture, we talk about this in the book, Culture represents certain values and preferences that people have for work. And so you want to make sure that when you're joining an organization that those values <laughs> and those preferences that you have for the work environment that you're going to be engaged in and committed to are actually going to suit your preferences and your tendencies. And so because that has all kinds of implications, kind of going back to the point that we were talking about earlier, where how we fully commit to the work, how we are perhaps more likely to stay or to leave um, because we can still be present, but already gone. (laughs) And that is expensive for organizations. And so, you know, there's some interesting work on this that Gallup has been doing for now 20 years where they've looked at with their Q12 employee engagement and have estimated that the cost of employees being disengaged, and they talk about two categories, those who are disengaged, they're checked out, right? They're just doing barely enough. And then those actively disengaged folks, they're engaged in deviant behaviors, um, mm-hmm. that that's 70% of your workforce. So think about that. I mean, that's staggering <laughs> that you've got 10 employees and seven out of them are in some category of being disengaged. And you're paying for that. Right. <laughs> your customers are paying for that. And so why would we continue uh, to do this? And, and, and Kathy and I say it's just it is it's illogical that that we would do that. And we don't believe that companies are intentionally, you know, having a workforce that is, you know, 70% or approaching 70%, um, you know, being disengaged. And again, there's variability around that, but there's just kind of a bottom line that they have um, identified in terms of, of their research. And so really, so how do we help companies so that, for in, to go back to the Zappos illustration that you gave, that that employee um, who decides that, yes, that Zappos is a place that I want to be, that that same energy, that same commitment and motivation that the employee had when they said yes, that they keep that uh, throughout the duration of their employment because it has all kinds of implications for the bottom line, again, looking at potentially this, you know, $500 billion cost annually uh, to companies to the costs that are, so, and that's a productivity connection, but the costs also associated uh, with turnover. And so uh, we think it's really, really uh, important to, to look at that and to figure out what is going to work for the individual 
uh, organization in terms of how they in, ensure that fitness is is there. Mm. No, that that's that's an outstanding uh, outstanding answer there, and and hopefully uh, that explanation answered kind of what what chapter two is. I'm kind of going down the chapters in the book a little bit here for for the listeners. I really encourage you all to pick up a copy of this book because uh, uh, you know the doctors have really they've laid the book out beautifully in my opinion. Um, I like the way towards the end of each chapter, and I like all books that are laid out like this. You've got the kind of the leadership actions that you can take, and then you've got a little note section there for reflection. and And I really like, I really like the way y'all laid that out. That that is a very handy tool that you put in a book. Uh, but you you y'all kind of identified five sources of employee demo, uh, demotivation. And uh, kind of going down the list here, the first one is individual differences. Talk about that, so, please. So when we were looking at the research, so kind of give a little context, it took Kathy and I about a year and a half to actually write the book. So we spent a lot of time reading, a lot of time researching, and to further inform our own professional experiences in terms of what we were seeing. And so... What we found in our research were these five sources, uh, individual differences, we can talk about stress, organizational culture, conflict with coworkers, and then leadership style. And we say in the book, we don't, this is, list is not exhaustive. There are other factors, but based upon the research and again, our professional experience, these were the five primary sources that we really wanted to focus in on. And so when we were, were looking at individual differences, this is really about you and I. And out of the five sources, it's the one that is enti owned entirely by the individual. So what do I mean by that? So we talk about individual differences. One of the areas that we talk about is personality. So are you introverted? Are you, are you extroverted? Are you open to experience or not? Um, do you have high levels of emotional stability or not? So we spend some time in the book talking about the big five personality traits. Because there are roles that are better suited to you and I in terms of how we are hardwired. And sometimes those roles change. So maybe we were, for example, we were maybe we were working as a researcher. And so that was highly stimulating to us as an introvert. And it was great um, for us in terms of what our preferences were for how we would work and then how we could, could – uh, provide value to the organization. But as happens, we get tapped on the shoulder. Somebody says, wow, you know, Tara's a really good researcher. And so, you know what, we'd like for her to lead the team of researchers now. That's a very different role. Right. That becomes more public facing. That requires you now to be responsible for other people. And now I'm pulling on a part of your personality that is really not one of your preferences. You, I'm, you're now having to interact with people. You're now having to build relationships and to make connections. And for an introvert, that may be Become exhausting over time. And so this wonderful work that you once enjoyed, some now is less stimulating for you. It's actually tiring for you. It's actually draining you. And so personality does play a role. And personality isn't something that you and I can really do much about. It's kind of hardwired in the DNA and it's kind of, it is what it is. So as a leader, what we say is while you can't necessarily change a person's personality. You can be conscious of that and then to put them in positions that are better suited to their personality preferences or if it's going to be in a situation where there might be some discomfort, then you provide support and training that will help to increase the likelihood of that individual being successful in that new role that is leveraging a part of their personality that is perhaps not their uh, their preferred method. So we, we recognize individual differences are important. We also talk about, um, you know, competence. And boy, have we all been learning a lot during COVID. Uh, <laughs> yes. And having to change our way of, of doing things. And so, of course, I'm in education. And so you can imagine in higher ed, there was an article on Bloomberg some months ago saying that 70% of faculty in higher ed had never taught online. Mm. So imagine... <laughs> Suddenly, all these faculty who have, they're comfortable in their classroom spaces, right? They know how to navigate that. They are in their element. And now those same faculty members now have to move online, which is a brand new space. The, the tools and the design looks very different than it does in the classroom. And now these highly capable, you know, credentialed, uh, you know, just top, of, top tier professionals are now struggling, <laughs> 
because they don't know how to do something or they're not very good at it. And so competence is something that you and I struggle with. And if the leader doesn't come in to provide support, to help the employee to get past that discomfort that comes with not knowing how to do something and helping them to get up to speed more quickly and then supporting them, that can cause that employee um, to be demotivated. And so we recognize that individuals, you and I, have control over our demotivation. There are certain parts of that that you and I own completely, but we say to leaders, we're not, you're not, you know, you don't get a free pass. You can't abdicate responsibility and say, oh, that's just Tara's personality. No. What can I do understanding that to help to support her? Yeah. No, uh, I, I love that because it, it, it's so close to, uh, you know, one of the things I, I say, and, I, and I, I preface this, I say, this is probably the most controversial thing you're going to hear me to say today. When a project succeeds, the team succeeded. When the project fails, the leader failed. And, and it's this exact thing right here, right? You put somebody, uh, chances are you put somebody in the wrong place. Chances are you you completely misidentified what somebody's strengths or weaknesses were. Uh, maybe you miscommunicated it, the whole nine yards. But the one thing that I like about what you just said, and, and, and we have to point out at that point ourselves, is especially in a, in a, in a time like what you're looking at here now, when, when you have, say, it's a tech space or even an education you have educators who are used to doing it, quote, the traditional way, and now you're forced to do it a different way. Sometimes you have to step back and look at that newer educator that may be more used to doing things that way and give them an opportunity to help bring everybody along because that's a big problem that, that the millennial generation went through and, and subsequent generations are going to go through is that wasn't happening, which is what led to a big portion of that, you know, changing jobs every three years. There were times for their skills to shine and they were kind of being pushed to the back. You haven't paid your dues. You haven't, uh, you haven't proved your value. But if you embrace them and bring them forward, you can keep them motivated because they feel like they're a valuable part of the team, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the things that leaders have to think about to your to your point is how do we allow people to bring their strengths to the table every day in the organization and and to let that be a, one of the guiding principles that you and I embrace as we're looking at our team, the dynamics and the importance of getting to the objective. And so, Recognizing that I think is is really, really important because when people can't really utilize their skill sets and their capabilities, then like anything else, they're likely to become disenchanted and say, okay, you know, I'm going to take my talents elsewhere. And what a loss Mm -hmm. um, for the organization. What a loss for the team members that really could have learned from that millennial. You know, and I go to bat for millennials uh, because my son is a millennial. He's an older one. Uh, But millennials have so much um, to to give when you tap into uh, their interests, when you tap into their values. They will really fully engage and commit and support. But it's but you have to find what their levers are uh, and then bring them into the fold. And that requires you and I as leaders to figure out how we might need to manage differently than perhaps we might have managed um, other uh, generations. Because in this tech savvy word, world, I'll take a millennial and I'll take a Gen Zer every day. Uh, because their capabilities are so integral to the work that the organization is going to be doing. Now, by the same token, they can also learn from those who have a set of experiences, because honestly, there is no substitute for experience. There are just some things that you've got to learn because you've done them, and there's a trial and error component. But putting millennials into positions where they can have those experiences causes them to be engaged, allows them to learn, and then to allow those who work with them uh, to to learn as well. Yeah. Well, and, and I'll just say this is kind of a, a word of caution because, you know, we kind of talked about it earlier. Why, why, should, uh, why should leaders, why do leaders need to solve the motivation crisis? You know, the danger that, that organizations are in right now is when you disengage that employee to the point where they're ready to take their talents elsewhere, as, as Tara just said, 
you never know when that individual is the one that's going to go out and create the startup that puts you out of business, right? Absolutely. That That's the advantage that uh, I'll, I'll just say younger generations to catch millennial and everybody they they have is they have a lot more opportunities than than we did uh, thanks to technology. So it's it's a scary you're you're kind of playing Russian roulette with not paying attention to motivation because you could be demotivating an employee out the door to put you out of business. Exactly, and so it really becomes this you know, strategic perspective taking that's required of leaders and not to be short-sighted in the choices that they're making, but to take the long-term view. And I know sometimes that can be challenging, particularly when uh, if you're a publicly traded company and there's this constant, you know, barrage of reporting and analysts and the chasing of stock price and other things that can cause individuals to be uh, short-sighted in terms of the decisions that they are making. But uh, I, I, I go back to, you know, to Jeff Bezos when, uh, when Amazon was being criticized <laughs> for some of the choices uh, that Bezos was making. And, and he, he basically uh, responded back that he was not running the company for the market, <laughs> And he was making strategic choices that would pay off in the long run. And I think it's hard to argue, given where Amazon is right now, that Bezos wasn't actually right. And so to your point, really being able to think about what are the implications of the choices that we're making so that we don't run off really good and talented people that could eventually, uh, you know, become our our competitors uh, because Amazon plays in a lot of spaces. And so, you know, companies have got to stay relevant because if they don't, uh, someone else is there to take their spot. That's exactly it. Uh, so the, the next one on the list, stressful work. You know, we're in the midst of COVID-19. <laughs> We've got uh, all, all sorts of civil unrest breaking out across the country. Every time you turn on the news, there's there's something else that seems to be happening. You know, we're in 2020 and there, there's this new thing, you know, with what's the disaster of the month going to be? So we're in a very high stress environment right now. Uh, add on to that a stressful workplace, I imagine. And, and you are kind of primed for a demotivated employee, right? I would absolutely agree with that. And if you think about it, even if you had an employee who wasn't necessarily demotivated before COVID, they were, you know, things were going well for them. They were happy with their experiences at work, how they were contributing, how they were, you know, working on projects, et cetera. But now their life has changed. Uh, Perhaps they've been personally impacted by COVID. We've got over 185,000 Americans who have died from the disease, more than 6 million infected. So maybe they've been personally impacted by COVID or maybe their work life situation uh, has changed. So their kids are home. (laughs) So they've got new coworkers Um, or their their spouse is home. And so they're trying to manage uh, those dynamics as well. And so... All of that then is compounded because you and I, we don't live in a bubble. We are a part of the, the world. We are part of what's going on in America. And so you superimpose that on top of what we might be dealing with at work. And really, we have a recipe potentially for disaster if leaders and organizations are not proactive in their stance. And so one of the things that Kathy and I talk about in the book is that um, – stress cuts both ways. And so what do we mean by that? So there can be some short-term benefits to stress. You and I, we've all had this experience. We have this deadline. <laughs> we got a right. paper to write, right? whatever that has to be done, or a client deadline that has to be met. So we're peddling really, really hard to get there. And then we exhale, like, oh my gosh, we did that. And we're super proud of ourselves. And we pat ourselves on the back. That kind of stress, that's okay. Short period of time, it's a short burst. It, it came and it went. Where stress becomes problematic is where when it returns frequently and it's ongoing and sustained because then it can lead to health implications around you and I perhaps having issues with you know, heart disease, um, you and I having uh, cardiovascular uh, issues that arise from that. So 
stress uh, does have health implications, but also the implications for the workplace. When you and I are stressed, not only are, is our productivity impacted, but that impacts you and I actually being present. So we may be more likely to be absent um, and, or to call in. And so we really have to think about stress and what it means in, in the workplace. And in this time, paying attention to stress with your employees is consequential. I'll kind of give you an example of this. I've been in our meetings and you can tell that one of your coworkers is actually stressed by their body language. You can tell that they're stressed by the comments that they make. And I think what's really important as, as a leader is to not only hear that individual and to see them, but to respond to that. And so one of the things that I've done uh, with my own staff is to, once I recognize that, is I actually, once we're done with that meeting, I actually then pick up the phone and call and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation just to say, hey, just want to chat with you, you know, for a few minutes. I could see from your face. I could see from X, Y, and Z. And we talk about this in the book around managers really sitting down with employees to say, okay, let's talk about what's going on. Let's talk about how I might be able to step in, to pitch in, to help. It doesn't mean that you and I can actually take away the stressor because the situation may be just what it's going to be because of the circumstances, particularly around COVID. But when people know that you care about them, Earl, and you know this, people really internalize that. And it helps them to maybe exhale for a moment, sit down with you, and in a really thoughtful way, come up with how you can then proceed, how you can move forward. And so I would really encourage leaders during this time to make sure that you're really having touch points with your people. And I know sometimes, particularly if you're managing large groups of people, if you have, you know, hundreds of people that you're managing, that that can be a little more uh, difficult in order to do that. But think about how you can actually personalize um, those interactions. And it might be just that how quickly could you send a quick email um, just to check in? Uh, that may be more efficient than, you know, trying to call hundreds of people. I get that. But you and I being intentional so that people know that we actually care about them uh, and then actually not just saying that, but actually demonstrating that. I mean, that, that word care, I mean, it, it's such a small word, but it has such a huge impact. I mean, uh, I love everything you just said, and, and it, it's it's weird to me uh, being a Marine. You know, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, my, my background is in the Marine mm -hmm. Corps, and 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 that that care and concern was a, a central column of Marine Corps leadership. You know, we had this saying: the the two primary missions of the Marine Corps are mission accomplishment and troop welfare, not or and troop welfare. Because you had to take care of the troops to get the mission accomplished. And, and every great leader knew that. And so it always boggles my brain that, that a, an organization that is known as the few, the proud, the Marines, and, and the, the world's toughest fighting organization, and all these things that we say about the Marine Corps, all true, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but, 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 but we've put caring for our people as a central column of our leadership abilities. But when you go into a civilian organization, you start talking about care and concern and heaven forbid you actually use the L word and talk about how you should love your employees. Mm -hmm. It's it's like you're telling them to, to, to kick puppies, right? It's amazing to your point. And it's one of, so one of my favorite authors and researchers is Jim Kutzis. And he actually, uh, endorsed our book and, and Kathy and I had the chance to interview Jim a few months ago and he has on his email you'll see this tagline love them and lead them and he tells this story in uh, his book the leadership Ca challenge with Barry Posner about this story of a general that shares you know basically what's the secret and the secret sauce is loving your employees mm -hmm. and it's so it's so simple and, and again you don't expect to hear that from someone in the military <laughs> it's like he's gonna say he's gonna say something but it's not going to be that. <laughs> but he he recognized how the the importance of loving your people and that genuine love, which embodies care and empathy and concern for them, how that mattered, how that was the differentiator. And to to think that that leaders 
don't necessarily embrace that philosophy and more importantly practice it uh, really becomes just a point of kind of consternation from, from my vantage point and I would think you would probably agree with me with why we don't uh, attend to that. Loving doesn't mean that you can't still create accountability. Parents do this every single day. We love our kids to lie but mm-hmm. when they don't follow the rules or there's a consequence, we dole that out. We create the accountability. So the two are not mutually exclusive. They do uh, coexist, but how important it is that people know that. And so I really love that on, on Jim's whole tagline with love them and lead them. And if we do that as leaders and organizations, imagine just the impact that we would have on our employees and then our department and then ultimately uh, the organization more broadly. Oh yeah, no. It was um, so. It had a uh, so the way the Marines work uh, with leadership development is as you progress through the ranks, you have to go to subsequent schools, you have to go to a corporal's course, you have to go to a sergeant's course, and such on and so forth. And I had an instructor in one of those. Uh, he 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 said, the perfect definition for Marine Corps leadership is this: you have to be professional enough to be able to train your troops for any situation they could come up against, up to and including death and be ready to send them into that situation. But you have to love them so much that the idea of doing it rips your heart out. And and that says so much, right, about the role of the leader, so much about the character um, of the leader. And, you know, it just really embodies what I believe leadership really is philosophically. It is so much about other people. And going back to the point that you raised earlier, that recognizing the importance of the team, recognizing the importance of those who are following you, understanding that has all kinds of implications in terms of you actually achieving the mission and getting to the goal. Because those two have to come together in order for you to be successful. Because the leader in and of you know himself or herself cannot do it alone. They've got to have the team uh, on board. And so really, I, I love that whole uh, illustration there that you gave with, with the whole training. And it also goes back to really your opening question about the burden of command. And so recognizing the real consequence of the choices that I that I'm making and to care so much about my people that I want to protect them to whatever extent possible. And if harm is going to be a potential outcome that I really I'm you know, I struggle with that and I obviously want to try to try to mitigate it. And I I, I was sharing the story the other night in our I teach in our MBA program, and so I had a group of students in their second leadership class, and one of the things I was sharing with them when we were talking about is, you know, in a civilian context, we aren't typically faced with decisions of life and death. Uh, They just, they don't come up unless we are in uh, certain kinds of professions, for example, healthcare. But on a day-to-day basis for for many of us in, in industry, that's not the case. But when you think about COVID right now, the choices that we make have the potential for life and death implications. And so really thinking about our stakeholders, thinking about our students, thinking about our faculty, um, thinking about our, you know, ancillary support services staff, you know, are we making choices that represent what you and I talked about here, right? Caring about the team, recognizing the importance of the team and balancing that against the need to achieve, right? Whatever the outcomes and objectives that we have. And it has really come home for me during this time about really how consequential our, our choices can be. Well, and, and yes, absolutely. And, you know, we've kind of, we, we haven't really kind of said it, but we've been kind of talking about number three on that list mm-hmm. of five organizational culture. That's really kind of what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And and I think we've done a pretty good job of illustrating why organizational culture is important to motivating or demotivating an employee. But uh, you and I talk about it more from the motivation standpoint. What what type of, what what is, oh, I want to really ask this question correctly. What is wrong with corporate organizations right now that is leading to this demotivation crisis? So one of the things that I would say is in terms of of culture, you know, 
culture starts at the top. Uh, leadership sets the tone. We, we hear that all the time. We, we, uh, and we may very well embrace that philosophy ourselves. But one of the things that, that organizations uh, struggle with is setting an appropriate tone from the top that actually cascades down throughout the organization. Uh, one of the things that Kathy and I talk about in the book, we talk about this early on, is we are not cynics. So we don't believe that a leader wakes up in the morning, brushing their teeth, standing in the mirror saying, hmm, let me see how I can stick it to Earl today. <laughs> Despite <laughs> what Earl might think, that doesn't happen. Right. We're really, really not doing that. And so what we say is really leaders are doing things out of ignorance. They're doing things unintentionally. They are not aware. They don't know that what they're actually doing is causing employees uh, to be demotivated or causing employees to have holes punched uh, in their motivational basket. And so really that's what we talk about in this book is to really equip leaders so that they are behaving in ways or not behaving in ways um, that will cause employees uh, to, to be, uh, to be demotivated. And so one of the things that, that I would argue in this point in time that, that culture can impact right now is information flows. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's really critical right now is whether it's, Good news, bad news, or something in between. Leaders need to be over-communicating. Because when you don't communicate, you create a vacuum. Yes. And what happens is, you, you may have heard this phrasing, uh, making stuff up. Some people mm -hmm. use another more colorful piece of language with the stuff. <laughs> but that's what people do. It becomes MSU. Yeah. And so instead of going down that path, Let's over communicate with people and let's tell people what's going on. People can handle the truth as long as they know what the truth is. And what leaders need to understand is just because you don't say it or you don't talk about it doesn't mean that that employees are not talking about it. So over communicate, make sure that information is not just cascading down in the organization, but information is flowing up. So you created mechanisms where people at all levels in your organization can actually share information. And then you are actually taking that information and then utilizing it to inform the choices that you are making. Or if you can't, then you cycle back and you say, thank you for that information, but here's why we can't do that. Or here's how we've already perhaps maybe already accounted for that. And I'll say one of the things that, you know, my institution is doing is we are having um, daily communications that are coming out from our communication office to say, okay, here's an update. Here's what's going on. That's happening every single day. And then we have a weekly huddle, which happens. So you have senior leadership with a weekly huddle on Tuesday afternoons. And it's a 15-minute it's a meeting. So these are not long. These are quick updates, about five minutes of updates, and then 10 minutes for Q&A. And then people can go back. And so one of the things that we did in this last meeting was to talk about an update on the COVID cases. Because if you open for business, you're going to have COVID cases. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so... And, and people know it. So people are guessing. What are people guessing? Do we have any COVID cases? <laughs> so what should you do? You should tell them <laughs> exactly. what the status is. It, you not telling them doesn't mean that they aren't having the conversation and thinking about it. But what they're doing, because you didn't tell them, is they're making stuff up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so communication, when we think about culture, is so important right now. So if I was going to give any piece of advice right now to someone in a leadership position, it would be to over communicate uh, with your people. They'll tell you eventually, you know, okay, that's too much, but you'd rather have that than people saying to you, we're not hearing from you. We don't know what's going on. Uh, and so I think that that should really be a priority right now for organizational leaders. No, no, I like that a lot. It, it, uh, cause two things, you know, one, you're a hundred percent, right. And, and like you kind of said, the stuff that people make up, it's it's never positive, and it's always worse <laughs> than it really is. Like, like you said with COVID cases, you know, if you don't acknowledge it or, or, or somebody catches wind that there is, there has been COVID cases, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you had two, but they're like, oh, I heard we had 37 people. Right. Uh, and 200 are quarantined. Exactly. But, but what you said there about communication, it reminds me of... Uh, a quote I heard from uh, from William Urey, he uh, wrote Get to Yes and a couple of other books, uh -huh. but he made a comment. He said, 
just about the time you were tired of communicating a message to your team, they're just starting to listen. <laughs> I oh, I have to laugh out loud on that. I'm like, that is so true. Because you know, it, we think that when we tell the we tell employees something one time that they got it. Right. And that they fully processed it and they know exactly what we mean and, and, and what we're doing. But to your point, it doesn't work that way. People, <laughs> they heard a part of it and then not the rest of it. Or maybe they hear anything. And it was the fourth time you said it that it registered. So uh, that that's pretty funny, but so true. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. And, and uh, you know, so kind of tying some of this together, we're uh, conflict between coworkers. So you've got individual differences. Uh, got a stressful work environment. You got a let's just say questionable organizational culture. Communication may or may not be the best. People are filling stuff in uh, with with worst case scenario stuff, which increases the stressful work environment, which uh, does further damage the organizational culture and individual differences. It's, these things kind of start a, a cycle there, right? Mm-hmm. And a vicious cycle. <laughs> and, and ultimately, you're going to have two coworkers. That, that are on opposite ends of the spectrum or even on opposite ends of, of one particular piece of, of the spectrum of the organization or even a personal issue that have conflicts. How does that affect everything? So it's interesting because, um, you know, culture actually has an impact in terms of how we actually deal with conflict inside of the organization. One of the things that Kathy and I talk about in the book is we say, okay, there are, you know, there are four cultures that uh, that we actually, you know, take a look at in the in the research. It's based on some work by Cameron and Quinn in 2011. So there's clan, etocracy, hierarchy, and market. And so it goes back to an early part of our conversation where, you know, we were talking about fit. And so people have preferences. And so uh, assuming that those preferences have been met, you've brought together, you know, a group of people who actually want to be in the organization and who fit culturally. What's interesting is that we know that when we bring individuals together and we ask them to work on teams or to be a part of a project or to join a functional area, they are not uh, a monolithic group. They have different perspectives, they have different backgrounds, uh, they have different ways of doing work. And so conflict is really a a natural part of work. It comes about, you've done work on diversity and inclusion, and I know you talk about um, uh, differences in terms of of cognitive thinking, right? And so when, when that happens, there conflict is going to be an inherent part of what happens in the organization. But culture impacts how people view conflict. Is conflict something to be avoided or something to be embraced? Uh, Is conflict something that when it comes up, we put it on the employees and we say, you guys go and figure that out, that's your problem, or is, are there steps that the leader has taken or tries to take to help to, to mitigate that? And so one of the things that we really talk about uh, in the book is around these views of uh, conflict. And, and there's some interesting research around this. I kind of mentioned one of them. This whole avoidance uh, view is basically a traditionalist view where, you know, conflict is bad right. <laughs> and it's to be avoided um, at all costs. And sometimes in your organization, that that's a prevailing view. Um, you know, when someone brings up a differing point of view, um, we squash that. We don't really want to hear that, you know, it's everybody line up and agree to the direction that we're that we're going in because we don't want to deal with the potential challenge that comes with these dissenting points of view and then having uh, to navigate that. But conflict, when it's healthy, can actually be quite functional uh, because it leads to this great conversation. I mean, I love to I love a good debate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I enjoy being in a conversation where we're using data and not personal opinion. (laughs) Uh, to actually talk through a potential course of action and the rationale and listening and doing that perspective taking. And I've found so many times in my own work that we actually get to a better outcome than we would have if we had not had that difficult conversation. And I just had one of these the other day. And then my colleague and I, we picked up the phone and he was like, that was kind of messy. And I was like, yeah, it was. I was like, but it was so productive. He's like, you're absolutely right. And I said, we're used to those kinds of messy conversations. But you know why we're accustomed to them? Because we have a culture that allows for people to dissent. We have a culture that allows for people to 
bring a contrarian viewpoint, but to, to disagree, but not to be disagreeable. So we have ground rules for how we're actually going to engage in those conversations. And so one of the things that we talk about in the book is that you are going to have uh conflicts with employees and again kind of a couple of buckets here task conflict so so i think that we ought to do one two three you think that we ought to do four five and six so we're sure. disagreeing about how the work ought to be done that's that's commonplace um or may maybe you and i um maybe our relationship is struggling all right uh maybe i we were working on a project together and maybe you said something or maybe you took credit for an idea that was mine and so you know now i've got this issue <laughs> air quotes if you could see me uh you know with earl and instead of you know talking to you about and reconciling that issue it's just kind of it's it's festered and you know now we've got other people now i've got other people uh involved in it and so the question becomes how does the organization handle that well hopefully leaders have empowered employees that, and we teach this in our MBA program, if Earl and Tara have an issue, let's have Earl and Tara talk about it. But you have to train people. You have to equip them with how to have that difficult conversation. Because some people are predisposed to, I don't, that, I don't want to have that tough conversation. I don't want to bring up the topic because it makes me uncomfortable. Um, I might have to hear something or say something that I really don't want to deal with, but we can help people to get more comfortable with resolving conflict. And so training people so that Earl and Tara can resolve it, because if you don't address it, it's not like it's not impacting other people because everybody knows that Earl and Tara have an issue. <laughs> and now the other employees are actually talking about it and perhaps taking sides. So, mm -hmm. you know, people are on my side, people on your side. That is not healthy um, for the group. And so equipping employees to deal with it directly or if the employees can't mitigate it, then you as the leader actually stepping in to say, OK, we got to get to the bottom of this. Right. And then figuring out with the, uh, you know, employees that are having the, the issue, what the next steps are. And so this may be as simple as sitting down uh, to have a conversation with uh, the employees. And it might be a separate conversation, right? So, you know, in terms of how you do it, but the point is that you opened up the dialogue and then you're using that as a way to move forward uh, towards resolution. And so that really becomes important we think about uh, the fact that uh, conflict, again, has a place in organization. It's gonna, organizations, it's going to happen. But you want to make sure that it's functional as opposed to dysfunctional. And when you let conflict go and you don't address it, it actually becomes dysfunctional. Mm. No, I, I, I love that. You, you, I mean, I got nothing to add. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, be, being, uh, you know, like I said, being a Southerner myself, I'm just sitting over here saying preach, right? So, uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you nailed it. But uh, so, you know, number five on the list, and this is a word you and I have both used quite a bit today during this conversation, leadership, leadership styles. How do leadership styles demotivate people? So leadership styles, and, you know, there's many of them out there, uh, you know, anywhere from, you know, these uh, behavioral theories to, you know, situational, they're all out there. And we talk about, you know, servant leadership and a democratic style and affiliative style and coercive style and all of that. So there's all these kinds of styles. So basically it's about how people behave. So leadership at the end of the day is about what you and I do. It's the behaviors that we uh, engage in. And, and what's interesting is what we talk about in the book is looking at how leaders behave, and we've identified six important behaviors. And what we say around these behaviors is that when leaders don't do these things, so we talk about them as failures, here are the consequences. And so I'll kind of talk about them uh, really quickly here. But when you don't explain the why, and basically the idea being here is that you need to tell people where they're going. Mm -hmm. You need to cast a vision. <laughs> Be clear about it. So that people understand in their day-to-day -day activity how what they are doing actually contributes so that they can row in concert with what you are trying to accomplish. Um, and if you think about that, just how important that messaging really is in terms of your employees. And, and there's a story that's told about, um, you know, basically there was a janitor that was working on, um, uh, working with NASA. And so, you know, working on the, the project, you know, to send 
uh, you know, John Glenn in his face. And so, you know, a reporter asked him, you know, well, what's your job? And he responds and says, send a man to the moon. You know, so the, <laughs> that, the janitor, right? <laughs> that easy, right? Yeah, exactly. So think about that. The janitor understood that everything that he was doing as a part of his work was tied to, was aligned with this end objective, right? This mm-hmm. vision that had been cast that we were going to, you know, send a man uh, to the moon. And so helping organizations to, and leaders to really do that is important. We talked about this earlier, the failure to communicate frequently and clearly. Again, if you don't communicate, if you don't tell people what's going on, they will, they have a grapevine and it is real. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and it <Yep>. lives. <laughs> And it will communicate in your absence. And so we talk about how important that is. The failure to invite input and opinions. One of the worst mistakes that you can make is not to ask your people Mm. to get their perspective. And don't do it because people are smart and they're going to figure out this very quickly. Don't do it to say that you did it as a check the box and you really didn't intend to do anything with what they had to say. Do it with purpose. You really want to hear from them. And then take those things that you can and implement them or adopt them as a part of your decision. And if you can't, then it's this whole idea of of, of closing the feedback loop. So going back to say, we had this idea and this input, but we couldn't do it because of X, Y, and Z. Or we may be able to do it in a certain period of time under these conditions. But you let people know and you do it purposefully, you really want to hear from people and you're going to do something with it. Providing effective feedback uh, in coaching. you got to let people know how they are doing. And don't. And it's not enough just to do the annual review. Everybody knows that that is just a check the box kind of event. <laughs> right. yep. Feedback should be ongoing. And that can be as simple as popping into your office and I stop by and they say, hey, Earl, you got a few minutes? And you say, sure, Tara. They say, hey, Earl, just want to let you know, you did an amazing job um, on that project. Um, when I look at the quality of how you actually, you know, put together the PowerPoint deck for them, for the, you know, for the client, how you answered their questions, how you uh, anticipated potential, you know, pushback from them, right? So I'm giving you specific feedback. It's actually actionable. It's something you can do about it. It's timely. So giving that feedback uh, is really, really important. Then it makes it less difficult when you have to deliver the corrective feedback. I tell people all the time, when you, even though we are adults, every time that you have that performance conversation with your employee, you ask them to come to your office, They think that they are going to the principal's office. They are 50 years old and Mm -hmm. they still feel like they're going to the principal's office. So building that relationship before these kinds of formal interactions have to take place. Again, I I know performance management is important, but it can't just be at the annual review. Then we talk about removing obstacles. So employees have barriers that they have to navigate. Help to remove them. Your people want to work. So one of the big barriers with moving to this remote work environment was people having access to technology. Can they VPN in? You know, do we have the the video conferencing software? Are people comfortable with that? So those are obstacles. Um, And so you have to remove those obstacles. You have to remove those barriers so that people can give their energy to the work. And then you fail to adjust your leadership style. So you manage people with a one-size-fits-all approach. Or every situation that comes up, you think it's a nail, therefore you use a hammer. Um, And this inability to adjust is really consequential because there's a lot of research around situational leadership and basically trying to match the skills in terms of the employee to the situation that you're faced with. And so you as a leader, you need to be able to do that. And I tell students all the time, it doesn't come to you like a multiple choice test. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to be able to recognize it in the moment and then respond accordingly. And sometimes you're going to get it right. And then sometimes you're going to go back and you're going to say, dang it. I should have done, but guess what? That's a learning experience too. And so we really talk about these six behaviors, failure to explain the why, failure to communicate frequently and uh, clearly, failure to invite input and opinions, failure to provide effective feedback and coaching, failure to remove obstacles, and failure to adjust leadership styles. When you don't do these things, you can cause your employees uh, to lose their motivation. And so what we're saying to leaders is you need to do these things so that that doesn't happen uh, to your employees. Mm. 
no, that that was outstanding. And and you know, as crazy as it is, we're coming up on on an hour here already. And I think uh, I think you and I could probably talk the rest of the day on this. But uh, I think so too. It's been really cool. <laughs> it, it has. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And and again, for the listeners, thank you for bearing with us. I hope you 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 have enjoyed it. Uh, the book again, the demotivated employee. Helping Leaders Solve the Motivation Crisis that is Plaguing Business uh, by Drs. Kathy Bush and today's guest, Dr. Tara Peters. Uh, Again, I want to stress this. Please go get a copy of this book. Uh, If you are in a leadership position, I don't care where you are in the organization, this book is is something that you are going to find value with and and I believe will be a quick reference guide that you're going to want to keep within in in hand's reach at all times. but, but Tara, you know, we, we've covered a lot. And again, like I said, I think we could talk about a lot more. Uh, and, and maybe we look at having you uh, back on, uh, maybe you and Kathy or uh, in the future. That'd be. We would love uh, to do that. We're actually doing that um, with Jay Izzo. So we'd love to come back and join you. So <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll have to make that, that happen. Um, but is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover today that, that you would like to, to touch on before we close out? You know, really, I think we touched on everything. The only thing that I would say is that really we have written this book to be a help. We really believe in you. We believe in leaders. And we know that each of us wants to be better and to grow. And so that's why we've written this book to help leaders to be more effective in their roles. We've identified specific behaviors, so things that you can actually do that will help your people. And then we've carved out this space and time where we think it's really important for you to be able to reflect. And then at the end of the book, we actually provide you with a leadership development plan template that you can actually work towards in terms of your own personal growth. And so I just encourage you, Kathy and I just encourage you to to develop yourself and to invest in yourself. And what a great time uh, to do that right now as we're navigating the changes and the challenges uh, that COVID has presented us with. But I firmly believe, in, 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 and uh, uh, Pat Lincioni said this, that we can emerge stronger and better uh, from this time in our lives. And so I just want to encourage you to emerge stronger and better uh, in this time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This is a uh... This has kind of forced us into our cocoon, if you will, and it's going to be interesting to see what people come out of the the cocoon looking like, right? Absolutely, and and I'm I'm excited by uh, by what that opportunity presents uh, for us and what it presents for uh, for your audience in terms of of what they are doing and what their next steps might be professionally. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Peters, on that note, if if folks have uh, you know they, they've hopefully have convinced themselves that they're going to go by the book now. They they like what they've heard. They like what uh, y'all are doing. Uh, how can they find out more about you? How can they contact you if they want to hire you to come work for their organization? And how can they get a copy of the book? So you they can go to our website, which is theleadershipdoctors.com. Uh, we are offering a special price right now on the book. Uh, it's on sale for $19.99, and so it's a great read. Also on our website, you will see uh, a Lessons from Leaders interview series where we've been talking to leaders and getting their perspective taking during COVID. So that could be a great uh, resource to you as well. So you can purchase on our website. If you purchase on our website, uh, you'll get a signed book. Uh, from either Kathy or myself. So uh, so that'll be uh, great as well. So again, you'll go to the website and then we ask that um, that you follow us on our YouTube channel. It's the name of our website, The Leadership Doctors, and then you can follow us on Twitter. Outstanding. And I'll have links to all of those in the show notes so people can uh, find them quicker. And I, I do encourage you to check all those resources out. Uh, again, I just, I, I really appreciate the time today. I really love what you ladies are doing. Um, it's always nice to chat with, uh, with, with like-minded individuals, if you will. Um, just, yeah, just keep it up and and thank you very much for spending the last hour or so with me today. Well, thank you so much, Earl, for inviting me to be a part of uh, your podcast and to have a chance just to talk leadership with you. Um, it's been a great conversation and, uh, really appreciate the opportunity to do so. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, listeners again, thank you for, for sticking with us uh, on this one. Um, really appreciate that. Appreciate the support. 
Uh, make sure you're still going out there and, and, and liking and subscribing and reviewing and rating the show on whatever podcast platform that you're listening on. Uh, you know, I, I say that on here all the time, but the way the algorithms work, the more of those we get, the more visibility the show gets, and, and the more uh, guests like Dr. Peters and uh, her colleague, uh, Dr. Bush, get their message out there. And these are important messages to get widespread. So thanks for helping out with that. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, burden.command at gmail.com, burden.command at gmail.com. Hit me with anything that you got there. If you got ideas for the show, guests, whatever you need, that's the best way to reach me. With that, I want to thank you again for being with us for the last hour or so. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric acid. Electric acid.